0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we will start studying here in Acts 4. Father, you are the God of all glory and grace. We thank you for your goodness. We praise you for your perfections. We are honored to to know you to belong to you as adopted children. We are richly blessed to be able to gather together with believers, to stay focused on who you are and who we are because of your salvation to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for your indwelling Holy Spirit who continues to work in us, and we pray that we will submit to the truth of your word and allow him to do his work. morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What do we do when people hate us and oppose us because we love and serve Jesus? Sometimes I think we wrongly believe that we are not the persecuted church right here, right now. There are a couple of flaws in that logic of thinking that we are not the persecuted church. The first one is that Christ only has one church, one body, one bride. So when Jesus' followers suffer persecution in Nigeria, in Afghanistan, in North Korea, and in many other places, we suffer with them in love and carry their burden to God in prayer. Furthermore, we shouldn't pretend Christianity isn't the prime target of persecution from a progressive intellectual elitism in Western culture and in our own nation. Those who are most influential in the public square have caved to the moral insanity that calls good evil and evil good. And what does God's word have to say about that in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And since we are the ones who believe that God himself is the standard of good and that the Bible reveals that he is the standard of good, you can see Romans 1, 18 to 23. So because that's true, we have become the target of their persecution. So what do we do when people hate us and oppose us because we love and serve Jesus? In our text today in Acts chapter 4, we get to observe and apply the way the early church responded to their first test of persecution. Here are two overarching principles we'll discover in Acts four twenty three to 35. First of all, the persecuted church draws near to God together in devotion and independent prayer. And secondly, we see them commit to mutual care and to common mission in the local expression of Christ's covenant community. Let's read together first, beginning in Acts 4 verse 23, when they were released, that is Peter and John from being jailed overnight and then questioned by the Sanhedrin, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, anointed being a reference to the Messiah. Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In proceeding through these verses this morning, we'll spend a bit more time on the first section because there are more verses and talking points. And then the second section, verses 32 to 35, will be connected to this first part and then also be connected to the following message on generosity and hypocrisy, which Lord willing will cover next time. So what our passage speaks of today might not, prove to be the, might not prove to hold the only possible right responses to persecution, but they are certainly set forth as healthy and almost certainly as primary responses to persecution. So according to this example in Acts 4, then, we respond to persecution first by drawing near to God together in devoted and dependent prayer. I want to draw your attention, first of all, to the we and together in that summary statement. What was Peter and John's immediate reaction to being released? Look in the text. Their immediate reaction to being released was, they went to their friends and reported, which must be the the core group that says in verse 31 is assembled together and not the total number of disciples that we see, we'll see in verse 32, because that could be upwards of 10,000 people now. So they go to their friends, the core group of disciples, maybe the 120 and, and, and some more, but that core group, they go to their friends and they report. Our culture so inclines us toward individualism as to be unbiblical. Jesus' church is a corporate entity by intentional design. We can't have the church or be the church without one another. We will not be healthy and useful to the kingdom the way God wants us to be unless we are at it together. And yeah, I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning. You're here. Well, mostly at least I'm preaching to the choir because some of us might still be those who primarily just attend worship services and don't fellowship that much with believers or participate together in ministry to one another, or in evangelism to the lost. But we have to be together in order to be the church. Another we aspect to consider in this context is that persecution rarely, if ever, remains isolated to select individuals. Persecution attacks a community of believers, and this is true for more than one reason— First of all, genuine Christians consistently practice their core beliefs, and that is, of course, problematic to those who oppose Jesus. That will apply to an entire group of Christians, not just to an isolated member. But this brings me to a second thing. When one of us becomes the bullseye of the persecution target, we all suffer together because we're indeed a community in Christ, like we said at the beginning. So we carry the burden together Especially in prayer. The response of the early church to what they hear from Peter and John then is corporate prayer. They pray together. And now we'll talk about how they pray together. I've worded these these statements um, more as more application for us. So these are things I believe they're practicing, and I've worded them as application for us. First of all, our prayers really should focus attention on God first. Such is according to Christ's instruction to his people. Do you remember the model prayer, or we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 11? The focus there is on God first and on his will. And of focusing our attention on God first is also for our good. I've worded it like this for you this morning. Expressing praise and thanks to God first in our prayers expands our joy in him. It extends our trust and rest in his care, exposes our sin by the light of his holiness, and expels selfish ambition from our hearts. It expands our joy in him. I believe that these believers were praying this joyfully. Receiving the persecution even joyfully, like the instruction in James's letter. It extends our trust and our rest in God's care when we focus on Him first. We think of ways in which we need to be confessing sin, and then our prayers themselves, if we focus on God first, our prayers themselves turn out to be a lot less self focused. So look in the passage at the second half of verse 24 to to the beginning of 25 at the things that we see the way they're focusing their attention. Sovereign Lord, there you have it, focusing on the sovereignty of God, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, and who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. There's a focus here on the fact that God is sovereign over evil, and God is sovereign over our safety and our suffering. God is sovereign over the things that, are, that took place with Jesus. We'll talk about that. God is sovereign over what is taking place with them. He's sovereign over their safety. He's sovereign over our suffering. And we shouldn't assume that safety and suffering are opposites. You know that trite, that thing, that, that cliche that we say in Christianity, that we say it so much it has become trite, but it's actually true that the safest place to be is in the will of God? It's actually true. God is sovereign over evil and sovereign over our safety and our suffering. If the suffering of Jesus was in God's providence, then surely we can trust him with our own persecution as well. And we pray, only strengthen us, Lord, to persevere and to do the task that you have called us to. So our, our prayers should focus attention on God first, and our prayers should be tethered to the truth of God's word. Praying things that are not consistent with God's will in the Bible is essentially asking God to be and to do what he cannot, to be and do what is inconsistent with himself, to the contrary, when we pray in accordance with God's word, we know that he is pleased to answer those prayers, even while we trust him to do so his way and in his timing. In the passage, we see this pretty plainly in the quotation and following Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. Listen to the application they make of this scriptural reference, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So now Israel is also equated with The Gentiles in this quotation, but all of this to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The quote comes from Psalm 1 and 2, here applying that quote to their own situation, in particular to what took place with Jesus. But again, they credit God's plan and predestination as being that which superseded even the evil intent and injustice from the hearts and the ways of men. So our prayers should be tethered to what we know of God from his word and what he has revealed as his will. And our prayers should prioritize God's glory through advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the same breath of that prayer that he will enable us to faithfully play our part. They didn't pray for vengeance against their enemies or even for God to put a stop to their suffering. Instead, they confirmed their trust in God and prayed for gospel advance. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They prioritize the advance of the gospel and their desire to faithfully do their part. A couple of points of application about prayer I thought of in preparation are as follows. How should we respond when we're not sure what to do? How should we respond when we're not sure what we should do at all? We pray for wisdom and we pray for patience. When we don't know what to do, We ask God for wisdom and patience. But here's something else that happens to us quite often. It's just difficult to follow through. How do we respond when we're pretty sure what God wants? We pray for boldness and perseverance, like the believers do here. And then we see the result here that we can trust the Lord's promise to empower his people. Granted, not all the results we experience as answers to prayer are as immediate and as impressive as what they experienced at this encounter of prayer. God chose again here in these early days to manifest his support of them in a sensory way. He shakes the place in which they're gathered. But secondly, they experience a renewal of the Spirit's filling so that they're enabled to speak, to continue speaking the word of God with boldness. And there's that word again that we've greatly emphasized in this section, boldness from God. A brief comment here on the filling of the Spirit taking place at this point again can be helpful to curb a common misconception in some Christian circles. This is not a second Pentecost nor a second blessing of the Spirit in some sense that we should have expectation of the same. We need not confuse an original act in which the Holy Spirit of God baptizes us into Christ, signifying His work of regeneration and coming to indwell the believer that He has enabled to respond in faith to Jesus. We need not confuse that with the filling of the Spirit as an active and ongoing work of God in the life of a believer as we yield to Him to have control over our hearts and our lives. Just as one New Testament example of this, in Ephesians chapter 5, when we get to verse 18, we'll see the Apostle Paul say, Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be controlled instead. Be filled with the Spirit. But in the context, he's speaking to believers that they must be careful that their walk, their holy way of living that it will be evidence to outsiders that they're indeed quite different from the world because of what Christ has done in them. So Paul instructs them in that section that as God's children of light, they should be sexually pure, they should be pure in speech, they should not be idolaters, and they should not be drunkards, verse 18, who ignore God's will for believers, but instead they should be filled with the Spirit. Again, for our purposes here, the simple point I'm making is that the filling of the Spirit is an ongoing opportunity in the life of a believer as we submit to God's work that He's doing in our lives. There may be times of the Spirit working in a uniquely dramatic way among us. We often call that revival. Revival isn't something we conjure up. Revival is the work of the Spirit of God in us. But that need not be a required expectation of our regular following of Christ. We continue to submit to him and are filled with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit to be his witnesses. So Peter and John had been empowered by the Spirit, chapter 4, verse 8, to give bold witness under duress. And that that boldness was even recognized by the religious authorities, chapter 4, verse 13. And now the believers pray for further boldness to continue proclaiming Christ in spite of their threats, and the Lord answers with the filling of the Spirit to enable them to do so. We too can trust the Lord's promise to empower His people, growing in our submission to the Spirit to allow His work in us and through us. And now as we continue, I'm aware that you could think of this next section as separate from their response of corporate prayer in the face of persecution. But I have connected them because I believe it illustrates further God answering their prayer, and it comes as another example of how they responded in this context of persecution. To explain a little bit, on either side of this mutual care and generosity that we're going to talk about, and even Luke's transparency about the imperfections of the first community of believers, there is on either side not only continued boldness... And the miraculous public ministry of the apostles, but also intensifying persecution in Jerusalem. So yes, the believers pray together to persevere, but they will also be of one heart and soul in all things, which is illustrated by a common focus on, or a common focus on the mission and in sharing God's provision. Look at verses thirty-two to thirty-five. I'm going to stop at thirty-five before the example of Barnabas, because we'll include that as we talk more about generosity, and hypocrisy. Beginning in verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. From the example of the newborn church in Acts, we learn a first a first healthy response to persecution that we saw was we devote ourselves to God together, independent prayer. And secondly, now we see that we can respond to persecution by committing ourselves to mutual care and to the common mission in the church. It's in Christ's covenant community where we experience God's care and his comfort for his people. This is how God designed for us. It's in the community that we experience God's care and his comfort for his people. The example you see here is that, in fact, the the believers see themselves as the means of God's provision for those among them who are in need. We experience God's care for his people in his community. I'll tackle, though, the the latter part of this statement first, since this one heart and soul is clearly connected to their common cause for which they've just been praying, the mission of advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ by boldly proclaiming the gospel. Having prayed together for enablement for this mission, we saw an immediate answer and a summary statement that God did so in them. And then here in verse 33, we see further outworking as the apostles in particular, are given a special measure of spiritual empowerment to testify that they themselves witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And that was promised to them in Acts 1-8, that they would be his witnesses. So like the early church, we are knit together, one heart and soul, when we share a common commitment to Christ and strive side by side for the gospel. One heart and soul. We are knit together. What might that look like for us? Together, we refocus our reliance on God and rest in his justice. They trust God's justice. Together, we repent of selfishness and self-reliance. Again, it's pretty hard to be those things when we focus on God and prayer. Together, we encourage one another by, by being willing to suffer persecution and a desire to preach Jesus grows in us from the testimony we see in one another. Together, we plead for God to show himself to us and show himself through us. Together, as a tightly knit band of of foreigners in this world, but those who are children, citizens, and soldiers of the Lord of hosts, we fight side by side to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we journey together toward the promised land of eternal life with God. We're one heart and soul. Because we are one heart and soul in Christ. And we're one heart and soul in our experience of God's mercy and in our experience of Him empowering us for ministry. You know how we tend to say around here that it's so amazing to be involved in one another ministry because you don't, it does, instead of it making you proud, it humbles you further, and you, 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 you end up saying, I can't believe that I got to be there, God, when your grace was at work in this other person. I'm just amazed that I got to be there. So these banded together disciples of Jesus share a common cause, and that common cause causes them to be willing to share what they have so that no one among them goes without basic provision. The group takes it upon themselves to be the means by which God provides for the needs of his people. The church's mutual care, at least partly, is manifest by generosity toward the common mission and fulfilling God's provision for each member. God not only provides great power, in verse 33, right, through the apostles, but he also provides great grace upon them all. God's favor being upon them both motivated and enabled this sense of community, this unity, and this generosity. So, back in verse 32, we saw that no one said that anything that he had was his own. Any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Not that whatever God has provided belongs to everyone else. The point I don't think is that what what one person possesses is actually belongs to everybody. No, I think the point is that whatever God has provided isn't actually mine, it's in fact his. They don't think of it as their own. It belongs to God. And and not that everybody had a common purse for everything, but we do see in these verses that there is a common purse for the distribution towards needs, especially in verses 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was not a needy person among them, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You have to remember that a bunch of these people were, in fact, from Galilee, or other parts of the world, and they didn't have houses or even regular income in Jerusalem. And this, again, is not that everyone sold everything at once. That doesn't appear to be what takes place, but over time, everyone who decides to generously give toward this effort, they can sell something that belongs to them, as Barnabas does, and as Ananias and Sapphira appear to do. People are selling and giving generously so that the needs of the people are met. Redistributing some of that wealth for the common good of the body and their joint ministry. We'll come back to these things next time because we're going to contrast the generosity of Barnabas with the hypocrisy in the hearts of the other couple we just mentioned. For now, the emphasis we've seen Is God's great grace and great power manifest in the early church by the way he enabled them to respond to genuine difficulty? So, again, how might we respond to persecution like the early church? We mustn't pretend that persecution is something of the past or that it's limited to only tyrannical regimes or even that the plight of other believers is not our problem. We must prepare ourselves. We must pray for other believers. We must train our children and our grandchildren that Christians are persecuted for following Jesus. Even before the specific trials arise then, we can obey the command of our Lord and apply the example of the early church to our own preparation and our own situations into our prayerful concern for others. So how do Christ's people respond to persecution? We saw in our text the last two weeks that the first thing we do is we proclaim Christ in spite of persecution. What's the first thing we do when persecuted? We proclaim Christ anyways. That's what Peter and John did, despite opposition. We anticipate opposition. We don't need to fear it because we fear God. If God is for us, who can be against us? And today we've seen from example that when we're persecuted, we draw near to God together in devoted independent prayer, and we commit to mutual care and common mission in the church. Draw near to God and draw near to one another. What do we do when we're persecuted? Draw near to God and draw near to his people. Lean on God and lean on one another. We must commit ourselves to God's purpose, proclaiming the gospel and growing the church set apart and sent, and commit ourselves to one another in love and service. Let's pray, and the praise team will come again, and then we will take the Lord's table together. Father God, we thank you again for your indwelling Holy Spirit, who, because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, when you regenerate us and cause us to respond in saving faith, you You give us your spirit so that we are confirmed in that faith and so that we are enabled to understand your word as as spiritual beings, no longer spiritually dead, but spiritually made alive. And we thank you that we can not only understand your word, but then because of your work in us that we can yield to your spirit and we can continue to grow and be more faithful. We can look more like Jesus. And we know, we know for sure that we struggle so much with sin and that our, uh, the flesh is, or the spirit is battling against our flesh and that war constantly is, is being waged within us. So we not only have this difficulty of persecution from outside, but we have this struggle from within. And so we know, God, that above all, what we have to do is we have to abide in our Savior. We have to trust in our Lord. We have to draw near to you, first of all, And most of all, and we also understand, God, that you have seen fit to help us draw near to you through the community that you have created, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, the church. And so we pray that we will be encouraged and challenged this morning to stay close to the body so that we will be encouraged, we will be challenged, we will be comforted, and that we will commit ourselves to the mission of proclaiming Christ in the face of opposition. We love you because you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.